Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Our hearts. Afternoons at... Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'd be the Bill Arnold part of that sentence. I'm so glad you're with me today. It's going to be a wonderful show. Scott Salls is going to be joining me in just a minute. He's written a new book called The Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. And as is on the BibleGateway.com website uh, today, I open it up and the verse of the day is, and I wish I was making this up, but I'm not, the verse of the day is, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Give me a sign, Lord, that Scott should be my first guest today. Any sign. And uh, he's joining us today as well. He is the senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville and co-founder pastor of the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. And he's authored a number of books, Jesus Outside the Lines, Befriend, From Weakness to Strength, and Irresistible Faith. I have uh, been going through his book, and I've got all kinds of dog ears and lots of things underlined, and I can't wait to talk to him. Scott, welcome. Hey, Bill. Good to be with you. I love your books, but you really crushed it with this one. Oh, really? I think so. I love it. Well, thanks for that. I appreciate that. I've got so much stuff underlined. Where do do you want to start? (laughs) Uh, Your show. I'll follow your lead. Well, tell me the, the the origins of this book and when this came to you and when you wanted to write it. Uh, I think it was about a year and a half ago, and uh, I was sort of thinking, okay, what's the next project? I was in conversation with publisher, and I said, well, you know, 2020, we've got another, uh, you know, election season coming up, and that will probably be uh, pretty pretty heated, like it was the last time. And so, what 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 can we put out there that uh, might give Christians a vision for living counterculturally uh, to a culture culture of outrage? Uh, and uh, you know, what would it look like for the people of God to have a different kind of witness uh, than what we're seeing? And the ir- ironic thing is, we're in we're in June. And we haven't even started talking about the presidential no. election uh, because so many other uh, so many other unexpected things have uh, come front and center and um, and are are dominating the outrage conversation uh, e- even more than election politics, if that's even possible. And so, so yeah, I mean the book. I'm very sad on the one hand that the book is so well timed, uh, but but the book is. I couldn't think of a, I guess, a more um, relevant time for Proverbs 15.1, uh, a gentle answer turns away wrath, to be uh, a key centerpiece of conversation, especially among people of faith. Yeah, and really, it, it is the verse of the day on, on BibleGateway.com. I love it. All right. I- I didn't. Yeah, I, I didn't. Get, I didn't get too far out of chapter one when I started heavily underlining, and I love the the scandal of a gentle answer. I know we all could uh, uh, benefit from learning how to be so Christ-like in the gentle answer. And you talk about um, the members of of Faith's Hall of Fame. I'd love for you to talk about that. 
Of the Faith Hall of Fame? Yeah, Faith's Hall of Fame, who are simultaneously uh, saint and sinner, virtuous and terrible, selfless and selfish, faithful and prodigal. Yeah, I think that's a description of all of us. I yeah. mean, we're, we're all duplicitous. Uh, Martin Luther uh, said we are simul justus et peccator. That's Latin for we, were, we, are, we are simultaneously saints and sinners at the same time. Uh, Paul talked about how we carry around us, with us, the, the old man and the new man. Um, you know, sin is still with us, and yet the Holy Spirit indwells and is transforming us uh, day by day uh, into the likeness of Christ over a span of a lifetime. And so, so yeah, I think I, what I was getting at there is that nobody's complete, nobody's perfect, um, everybody's broken, and everyone who's in Christ uh, has a hopeful future uh, to um, become the fullest uh, version of what God has created them to be. Mm-hmm. Scott, I'd love for you to talk about how Christians are often uh, labeled as hypocrites, and they talk the talk but don't walk the walk, and um, you make a wonderful uh, talk about that in your book as well. Yeah, well, I I would have to, you know, change the word they to we. Um, (laughs) You know, I I think that um, one of the arguments I try to make in the book, not really an argument, uh, but but one of the points I try to make in the book is that— that that hypocrisy is actually the founding basic central principle of of Christianity. Uh we wouldn't need Christ if if we didn't live inconsistently. We would have no need for salvation if we lived uh by the things that we say we believe and the things that we actually do believe. And 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 so um I think what I'm getting at there is that we don't need to pretend that we have our act together. We don't need to pretend that we've arrived. Uh, in fact, Christians ought to be uh, some of the most humble uh, and confessional people in the world. Uh, we should be the ones who are known uh, for saying, I'm sorry. Uh, we should be known uh, for being people who are quick to say, oh, my fault. Uh uh, what can I do to um, to help correct that? Uh, we should be also known as those who forgive really well, uh, and and so on, uh, because we presumably have nothing else to hide. Uh, if 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 our identity and our forgiveness uh, are uh, and our reputation are bound up in who Christ is and what what Christ has done on our behalf, then. Uh, then we ought to be a lot more free uh, to own our weakness and and hope uh, for and strive for better day by day by day. Mm-hmm. I also underlined on page 13 of your book, as the Bible uh, insists, Christ did not come into the world to affirm and accept the good people, but rather to rescue and receive the people who are not good. <laughs> well, that's right. And And by not good, that doesn't mean that there's nothing at all good in us. Every single person is created in the image of God, uh, which means that every single person's starting point is that they have dignity and worth and value. Um, you know, people who uh, don't know Christ, don't love Christ, are atheists, uh, are, are even, you know, given this thing that theologian call, theologians call common grace. 
where, you know, there's truth and beauty everywhere. Uh, and there's truth and beauty that, 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 that comes out uh, and comes forth from, from everyone that can be celebrated. Um, uh, but what, what believers have is, is uh, I guess, the awareness uh, of that and, and the awareness that only Christ is ultimately and completely true and beautiful, uh, uh, at least for now, until, until Christ returns and redeems and completes his people, and then that will be the description of us as well. Mm-hmm. Scott, I put a little mark in the book where I wanted you to elaborate on something. You were talking about belonging that comes before believing, and when Jesus called uh, to Zacchaeus in the tree, um, you uh, are m- making a point that Zacchaeus is um, is still a crook at that point. You know, he's, But you also go on to say uh, that he... Uh, you belong even before you believe. I'd love for you to talk more about that. Yeah, I mean that's that's the way that Christ reached people. He, uh, the way he reached us. You know, Romans five eight says that he demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, while we were still opposed to him, uh, that's when Christ died for us. And so, um, you know, we see that pattern played out in so many of his encounters. Um, you know, Zacchaeus, of course, is is a, a is a crook. Uh, he's a deceptive, uh, uh, self gratifying tax collector at others' expense, uh, and used his position to steal from people. And Jesus' first word to him was, "Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to eat together." I mean, mm-hmm. it's so, so beautiful. He, he shows Zacchaeus hospitality in Zacchaeus' own house. And, 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 you know, we can only imagine that Zacchaeus probably hadn't had a dinner guest in years uh, because of how disliked and disfavored he was by society. And both the Romans and the Jews, uh, tax collectors, were despised. And, and so to have Jesus say to you, hey, uh, our starting point is friendship, mm-hmm. and, th- and then we'll go from there, <laughs> you know, rather than the other way around— uh, where, you know, moralistic religion says, well, our starting place is you need to get your act together. And then we'll talk about friendship. Well, well, Christ and Christianity reverses the order of those things and says, look, uh, you belong with me before you believe with me. And in fact, you belong with me. And if, if, you'll, if you want to be my friend, uh, I'll be your friend whether you ever come around to my beliefs. I mean, that, that seems to be the way of Christ. I mean, all the way to the end, Jesus Jesus is referring to Judas as friend, uh, while Judas is in the act of betraying Jesus, and and so, you know, his posture is one of love. You know, Ezekiel, you know, the Old Testament, you know, gets a bad rap for being, you know, the the the, the harsh and you know judgmental God and, and and so on, and and yet, yet we have even Ezekiel, God saying, "I take no pleasure in the death even of a wicked person." Um, you know, and so so the message is consistent all the way from the beginning of the Bible that God is love, and that's the starting point, and that's how He's going to treat everyone, even those who reject Him. Uh, the, the very fact that we're breathing uh, is a sign of God's love, uh, that, that He gives us breath, breath and an opportunity for life, and 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 opportunities to, you know, consider the claims of Christ is an is a special uh, act of God's kindness. Mm-hmm. Scott, and then Jesus always seems to be attracted to people on the margins, doesn't He? The outcasts, the people on the fringe of society, the people that other people don't really like. 
I beg your pardon. I'm sorry, you cut out there, Bill. Oh, no problem. Uh, Jesus always seems to be attracted to people on the margins, the outcasts, people on the fringe of society, the ones that people don't like. Yeah, well, he wasn't just attracted to people on the margins. He he made sure that he was one of them. Uh, he he was born poor, and um, you know, as Isaiah says, he was despised and rejected. Um, you know, he came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. But yeah, Jesus was always on the margins. He was a homeless guy. Uh, he had refugee status uh, as a child, as they were fleeing from Herod's decree, and so. Um, you know, he's always, he's always putting himself in the midst of those who, for whatever reason, uh, feel like outliers, uh, to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Scott, let me take a little break. When we come back, I'd love for you to talk about uh, chapter five in your book, which is we do anger well. And I'm talking to Scott Sauls. He's written a book called a gentle answer, our secret weapon in an age of us against them. We'll be right back. Scott Sauls is my guest. He's written a book, uh, his new one, called A Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. I can't think of a more timely book. And in Chapter 5, you talk about doing anger well. Um, and you bring up a incredible point about uh, righteous anger that fights for shalom. Yeah. Uh, you know, Romans talks about how we're to hate what is evil and to cling what is good to what is good. And part of clinging to what is good is to be opposed to what threatens the good. And, uh, you know, the Bible talks in, uh, and this is, this is one of the questions I get when people read the table of contents, uh, of a gentle answer. Um, you know, the, the, the first few chapters make more sense to people than the last five, uh, you know, before they read the chapters, because, you know, the first chapter talks about how Jesus befriends the sinner in us, he reforms the Pharisee in us, he disarms the cynic in us, and, you know, how the gentleness of Christ comes to us in those ways. But then part two, uh, which is a section that talks about how his gentleness changes us, uh, it lists five different effects of, of, of Christ's impact, gentling impact on his people, and none of them sound like our stereotypical understanding of gentleness. We think gentleness. We think of gentleness as a wimpy attribute, as as a weak attribute, uh, as an attribute that you know makes us willing to get walked all over and and you know hide in the bushes when things get hard. But true gentleness is manifest in five ways: we grow thicker skin, we do anger well, we receive criticism graciously. We forgive all the way, and we bless our own betrayers. Uh, These are all really gutsy things that take a person of great strength uh, and great fortitude to lean into them. Uh, Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, and the the Spirit is a powerful reality. And uh, one of the things that He, the Holy Spirit, helps us to do is to do anger well. Uh, The Bible never says, you shall not be angry. Uh, What the Bible says is, be angry and do not sin in your anger. Uh, In other words, there are times where Christians should be infuriated. You know, C.S. Lewis talked about it this way. He said, Christianity is a fighting religion 
And what he meant by that was we, we look and we see things that are wrong and unjust in the world. And we see many of those things right now. COVID-19 is wrong. It's an invasion on the world as God created it and, and the world that we're meant to live in. Racism is wrong. Uh, 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 homicide uh, out in broad daylight is wrong. Any kind of homicide is wrong. Uh, unjust death is wrong. And so we're supposed to hate things that are wrong, as we do. Um, but, but our response is not to be one of unrighteous anger. Another word for that is rage, uh, where we just retaliate and we, we punish and we judge and we strike back. Uh, we are meant to do anger well, which means that, that, that we channel that anger, which is a destructive energy, to destroy the problem without destroying people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's, what, that's what healthy, godly anger is. I mean, Christ was sent into the world because of God's anger towards sin. And God's angry at sin chiefly because of what, what sin does to his people. Uh, he attacks our sin uh, by telling us to repent of it. Uh, he attacks our sin by, by, by paying for it all on the cross uh, and taking the hit for it all on the cross. That's how he attacked our sin. He attacked our sin so he'd never have to attack us. And, and, and that's, that's how healthy, righteous anger is meant to play out. Uh, and sometimes righteous anger means, look, if, if you're a victim of abuse, uh, if you're being bullied, uh, righteous anger means um, you know, somebody protecting the bullied from the bully. Uh, and, and it also means, uh, not continuing to make yourself vulnerable to the bully, but, 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 but to get out of harm's way and to not trust the bully until the bully stops being a bully and develops a track record that demonstrates that they're not a bully. And so, so doing anger well is very nuanced. There's a lot to it, but the bottom line is that doing anger well is about attacking the problem, not attacking the person. I like that, Scott, a lot. How do we receive criticism graciously? Um, well, uh, uh, you know, it, how or why? I, um, guess, I, guess, I guess both, right? Yeah, I guess both. Uh, I, I mean, nobody the, likes criticism. Right. And if uh, we're going to get thicker no, skin, we're going to need to receive this better. Yeah, no, no, nobody likes criticism because uh, of the natural religion of the human heart, and and that is described in Luke eighteen, or I'm sorry, yeah, Luke eighteen nine, when Jesus described a certain group of people, which is really all people at their worst, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on others with contempt. We want to believe that we're right and others are wrong. And that is especially manifest in moments when somebody offers even constructive criticism. Uh, Our defenses go up. uh, Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we start to look for somebody to blame. Um, You know, Eve Eve blamed the serpent, Adam blamed Eve, and then Adam blamed God for for giving Eve to him. Uh, And that's where we run. Uh, Unless our hearts are feeling secure in the gospel of grace, uh, which tells us that we are exposed but not rejected, and that we are known and we're found out and we're loved by the only judge who's ultimately going to matter, and that's Jesus Christ. And 
if we are walking around in that awareness, we can, we can receive a criticism in a vastly different way. A criticism, even an unfair one, can create an opportunity to consider uh, how we might grow more and more into the likeness of Christ. You know, my, my mentor for, for now probably you know, close to 15 years, Tim Keller, uh, says that, and, and he's had his fair share of unfair criticism uh, over the years, he says, even when I'm unfairly criticized, uh, I always want to look for the kernel of truth that might be in the criticism so that I will have, have something to take to the Lord, uh, repent of it, ask for his grace, receive his grace, and, and be renewed once more uh, in the love of Christ. And, and um, it, it takes a lifetime of spiritual formation to get to that place. But that's part of how we receive criticism graciously, is we, we consider it uh, before we dismiss it. Uh, and and uh, we're, we're too quick to dismiss. Uh, we're, we're too quick to put the burden of proof on our critic, uh, rather than to put the burden of proof on our on ourselves when, when we want to defend ourselves. Mm, so wise. Um, we, so learning to see ourselves through the eyes of other people is step one uh, in, in, in how we grow in what the Bible calls sanctification, becoming more like Christ. Yeah. See why I like this book, Scott? See why I like it? I'm glad you like it. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about chapter seven. We've only got a couple of minutes left. You say forgiveness is not acting like a doormat. What's that? In chapter well, seven. Not acting like a doormat? That's yeah. right. I, I think I already addressed that. I'll just put it in, you know, say a hypothetical pastoral situation. Let's say uh, a woman comes in and says, I just found out my husband has been unfaithful to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I don't want to leave the marriage, uh, you know, as long as he's willing to renounce, you know, his, his, you know, his relationship, his other relationship that he's been having and distance himself from the other woman uh, and re-engage to work on our marriage. I'm in. That's, that's what I want. I want that over, over divorce. Um, But um, he, uh, he wants to be intimate with me. And I just feel wrong about that right now. Uh, I think I think that becomes the conversation where where uh, a pastor or a counselor or a good friend will say, you should feel wrong about that, because even though you've already clearly done the work of forgiveness, which is assumed, uh, you've done the work of forgiveness, that's assumed in a Christian that that's the path we need to follow, uh, you are not called to trust a person who's betrayed you until they become trustworthy mm-hmm. and, and give you reason to trust them. And so your marriage is going to need some time uh, for, of restoration and, 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 and hard work on reestablishing trust that's been violated and broken and betrayed. And then over time, you know, your hope is that you can recover maybe even a greater intimacy than you've ever had. But yeah. You've got to through, go through that process of building trust, which is different than forgiveness, which comes at the very beginning. Thanks so much, Scott. So great having you on the show. My pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Usually the Monday afternoon mix is 
Miles Arnold and Maxwell, but here we are, but it's not Monday. So we're glad to be back together as the uh, threesome here talking about anything and everything. But today there's a lot on our hearts and on our minds with what's going on in our world, especially in our city, especially what happened uh, over the weekend. And uh, David gave some great perspective last time he was uh, in, and we continue to talk about a very important subject, and that is what's happening in our city. And we really want to look at the spiritual side of all of this today. So uh, that's the that's the task at hand. David, Rebecca, nice to have you both here, of course. Good to see you, Bill, and good to be back and seeing you good physically face-to-face. You face. No kidding. This is a bonus for both Rebecca and myself, so thanks for being here. So I want to start processing with you a little bit more about what happened over the weekend, and, and I want to get on the spiritual side of things, David, but I also just want to find out how you've processed the weekend and what you're thinking today. Wow, that, that's a lot. It's It's been a busy and kind of, once again, unprecedented time in some ways uh, for our entire nation. Um, I know for a number of people, they're like, wow, this is so surprising and these very things. But for people in the black community, this has just been a part of the 400-year journey. And so it's just that through video and documentation and things like that, that technology has made things an unavoidable issue. It's more real for people. But again, coming back to the gospel has been one of the things that's been really just the truth of us. We have a faith that really is not just for rainy days and sunny days, but straight out hurricanes, category fives. And even as I opened up God's word yesterday to share with our church family and others, you know, just kind of different emotions. Probably a few moments before I got up to preach, I was maybe wondering, like, Lord, I need you to carry me through this because my heart was heavy, it was hurting, and in the midst of that conflicted feeling of hopeful at the same time. So it's when you're talking with your kids, like my youngest kid, who, who child who's like, Daddy, that doesn't make sense that someone would do that. Like, And then, well, does that mean that that's for me as well? Like someone wants to end my life because of the color of my skin. Or just thinking that these are my my kids and my nieces and my nephews and friends of mine who are just living life and that you have people who are like, I don't know you. I know nothing about you. I know nothing about your family. But yeah, I'm fine with you dying. And that's disconcerting. I mean, it's sin, but it's still disconcerting. So there's such emotion that's tied to this for the entire nation, the entire world, I think at this point, that you can't see something like the footage that we've seen of George Floyd's final moments and not feel examining our own hearts and bringing it back to the word of God. What do we do with those emotions that does not continue to be a foothold for vengeance? or for wrath that does not produce God's righteousness. And that's a hard line, I think, to draw because those emotions are so powerful. Yeah, the the emotions are really real. And I think one of the things that we have to be mindful is that when there is injustice and when there is unrighteousness, it's okay to be angry. You know, Ephesians 4.25 doesn't say never be angry. It says be angry, but do not sin. If you hear of a group of young girls who are being abused through sex trafficking, it's not like, oh, go get a donut. No, there's something wrong about that. And the rioting part is wrong. The protesting part is different. And and here's what Dr. King said. He said, rioting and looting isn't new in America, and it's not exclusive to any race. This is in his speech the other America in 1967. And he's one of the most nonviolent 
uh, person and, and components of this. And he said, let me say, as I've always said, and I will say and continue to say, that riots are socially destructive and self-defeating. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. And, and he, he makes that statement. And, and, and I said, as I shared yesterday, I said, in America, we understand the frustration of not having its voice heard. We understand the frustration of being denied freedom and participation and then reacting. We just call it the Boston Tea Party where people who were disguised as Native Americans dumped out $1.7 million of tea in today's money. And we celebrate it as a triumph and not a violation of law and order to the British or ignoring Romans 13 on submitting to authority. And so there's always been various things. I mean, we're Protestants, which means we are Protestants to things. But you're right. It's what are you going to do with the anger or the feelings that you're feeling in this because there is a right way to respond to this matter that's right and that's godly. And when we look at that, an image bearer, and on top of that, an image bearer, despite the normal <clears throat> news that we get about people, was a, was a follower. He's, he's a baptized follower of Christ. And so... One of the things that's helpful for people to know is that when, when, when black people die publicly, they die two deaths. They're assassinated twice. First, they're assassinated physically, and then they're assassinated through their character. You know, the idea that even for a George Floyd as an image bearer, you know, it's like, well, maybe he forged something or he had a counterfeit dollar. And for people that are dear for me who live in these areas, I don't think that Elaine from Eden Prairie or Martha from Minnetonka or Simon from, from Shoreview would lose their life over a counterfeit dollar at the Galleria Nidina. And that's basically the definition of justice. Justice basically means that people are treated in an equitable way. They're treated the same uh, in their life, and that there's a justness. So when we see the violation of life like that, people should actually be bothered by this. And one way that helps us to become um, concerned, or one way that allows us to enter into this, is basically uh, the words that Ella Baker said. Ella Baker said this in 1964, and it's it's when you can see something valuable. And she said this, until the killing of black men, black mothers' sons, becomes as important to the rest of the country as the killing of, of a white mother's son, we who believe in freedom cannot rest until that happens. And we're still, mothers are, and we are still echoing that same cry today. So you're right. This, 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 this rioting and this, this looting, look, we can pick which one of the Ten Commandments that you want to go on, how wrong that is. But King says that rioting is the um, language of the unheard. And Baraki Seller, I'll say this before coming back to Bill, because let Bill chime in. Um, one gentleman, Baraki Seller, said, you know, the same people who are chastising the protesters, not the rioters and looters, but the same people who were protesting the, uh, that are chastising the protesters were, were, were plotting young white men showing up at a Capitol 
with AR-15s threatening lawmakers and screaming in the face of police. And people are like, well, I want to go back to work. And so people who are applauding that, but the same people who are chastising those who are in a right way saying we're concerned with the image of other image bearers, that, that's, that's, that's a contradiction. And what that does is it points to Dr. King's speech that there's two different Americas. And so the second America that blacks have gone through for 400 years due to technology, be it Armand Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Foster, or the Central Park Karen, that people watched with horror as she was making that phone call. And guys, that's the part, and that's, that's when my heart goes because that's me. That, that's my son's. Just simply out and someone saying something that led to the death of Emmett Till when my, my second son just turned 15 and Emmett Till was 14 years old. And you find out that on her deathbed, Carolyn Bryant said, I lied about that. That boy never whistled to me. And the three men in Duluth who were lynched, that that woman, when she, she's like, it never happened. And so that's a tragedy. That, that's, that's a reality. And when you know that it's simply that it's a lie and that it's wrong, we should be bothered by that. Unfortunately, we have a real gospel with a real truth and a real Savior who is the way, the truth, and the life. Mm-hmm. So, David, what do you uh, encourage the body of Christ to do in this situation? I mean, I, I would say true followers of Jesus love everybody, forgive everybody. They've got um, a heart for everybody. I mean, that's the way I know my friends to be and the people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. So what role do we play? How do we uh, participate in this right now as followers of Christ? It's a great question, and it's one that that comes. And because this in the mid-afternoon mix, we are always very much about God's Word. And so in Scripture, we see that Micah 6 eight says, He's shown you, O people, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. First, understanding biblically that racism is sinful pride. It's what happened in Numbers chapter 12 with the situation where uh, Aaron and Miriam spoke out against Moses. And the beauty of Scripture is that when Scripture repeats, it's like how we highlight things. And it basically says they spoke out against Moses because of his Ethiopian wife. And that's the reason why. Well, God shows up and he says, I'm not down with that. (laughs) And he turns Miriam, leprous as snow. And in verse 11, it says, And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. And so we don't coddle sin. We We don't sit there and play with it. When this is happening, it doesn't matter who you are. Call that out. And, and, and so, and be honest in a very biblical way and point them back to Scripture. But one of the things when people say, what do we do? We are not going to get anywhere playing around with the seriousness of this sin. And, you know, you, you've, you've heard me say this before. It was, a, it was a, a statement that Dr. Neely Fuller said. If you don't understand what my friend Andy Gray calls compound privilege— Another term is white supremacy or white preference. He said, if you don't understand that and how it relates to racism, everything that you do understand will only confuse you. I want to recommend 
one book by doctor, um, not Dr. Jamar Tisby. He's a historian. And he wrote the book, The Color of Compromise, where it looks at the church. And oftentimes in response to what do we do next, he talks about what he calls the arc of racial justice, of biblical justice. And it includes three components, awareness, relationship, and commitment. Awareness, because most of the people, most Anglos, most whites I've talked to, they're like, wow, this is so surprising. I can't believe that this is happening. You talk to people of color, they're like, been saying this like multiple ways and multiple times. Not like you're thinking this up or you're made up or you're just being overly sensitive. There's not enough time to detail how much of that sin. And with technology today, it's becoming an unavoidable issue because people are capturing this on video. Number two is relationship. When you have relationships and in those that you're loving, listening, and learning, it's hard to believe pejorative things about people when you know them personally. And then the last one is commitment, is where you commit to learn, you commit to engage. And the reality is it's been said that America doesn't have a how-to issue, but a want-to issue. We have a commitment issue wanting to do that. So that's kind of a a lengthy chunk, uh, Bill. Mm Mm-hmm on that answer, but there's a couple little handhelds, a couple things right there on the answer to what do we do next. I appreciate that. It is the uh, Monday afternoon mix, but it's not Monday with Miles Arnold and Maxwell. We're going to take a little break. We'll be right back. So glad to be getting back into the routine and the swing of things. I'm David Miles in studio as my guest, and Rebecca and David and I do the Monday afternoon mix, but we all know it's not Monday, but uh, we're enjoying catching up with David and Rebecca as what is going on in our world as we're processing the uh, never-before-experienced-in-my-lifetime um, pandemonium. I guess that's mm-hmm. probably the first thing that comes to mind because I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, this is... Um it's been something, you guys, and, and let me recommend to people because it, it's something for our time, and this is the importance of our learning history. But this kind of has some of the same feel of the Summer of Sam, you know, the year that, uh, that Dr. King and RFK and others, you know, all those various shootings were happening and things like that and writing that that happened. And interestingly enough, for for your listening audience, for not yours, for ours, love you guys. I was. You ever guys have those moments that you wish like you could s- literally sit in the car, or sit at the dinner table, or at the kitchen counter as food is being made with individuals, and just be able to spend face to face time with these guys. I, I know I do, but take a look online sometime at the Red Summer of nineteen nineteen. And, and right now, literally, it has this type of historical feel that's going on again. And so um, unprecedented in some ways, and then some ways it's kind of history kind of repeating itself, which is, which is concerning. But it's a beautiful time because the gospel, Romans 1.16, is the power unto God. We have an opportunity to, to richly live out a different part of this story, a different ending, a different testimony to this story. 
I'd like to hear more about that and about seeing it as a spiritual opportunity because I think there's so many Christians just all across the country that are looking at this and thinking, wow, this is so big Mm -hmm. and so much of it feels so untrammeled um, anger and and fires in the streets. And and so how do we fight in the spiritual component of things because the the kingdom of God and our response always looks different than the way we might fight according to the ways of the world. Mm One is understanding that when Jesus leads us in in the Sermon of the Mount on saying, blessed are those when you're persecuted and pace, um, for your faith and, and loving your enemies and letting your light shine before men, it's not something that Jesus is kind of speaking um, theoretically from, you know, biblically understanding as we talk about really wanting to rightfully know God's word. And then that word hermeneutics, it talks about what was going on. Well, you have Jesus growing up in a period of time where the Israelites, the people of God, that this, you know, olive brown skin Palestinian that we know as Jesus of Nazareth, they're living underneath Roman rule. They've been colonized. And Herod Antipathus and Pontius Pilate is in that area. And you have a group of poor people of which, you know, Jesus grew up where people made fun of him because, you know, he was an illegitimate child. And later in life, we don't know what happened to Joseph. And he had family issues. And then he's a part of this people group that's poor. And in this time, you have kind of three different ways that people wanted to respond to this. You had the Pharisees who wanted to have spiritual, um, they wanted spiritual purity, and they sought to separate themselves from people. And and that was their response. You had the Sadducees, which who were more liberal. The Pharisees are more traditional. That's kind of more of our evangelical. We're, we're very much in that the, the Sadducees were liberal, and they wanted to just kind of blend into society. Then you had the Zealots, and uh, Jesus had James, who was one of them. And as a Zealot, they wanted to overthrow society. But neither three of those situations will accomplish what God wants to accomplish, which is a prophetic ministry response that's deeply Christ-centered, but is also concerned with the real-life world of the people that you're ministering to that actually does care about food because Jesus fed people, that actually does care about diapers and cleans up. And then you also have that very part that's activism. We, we're pro-life. We, we care about the life of the unborn. God is just pro-life from womb to tomb and beyond, and that we need to be that way in the same way. So the gospel response is having hope to know that the Bible that we read, it speaks specifically to this. The division that we see, the gospel speaks specifically to this. So so when Ephesians says that Jesus uh, was one man who came and he took the dividing wall of hostility between Jews, an ethnic group, that was near. And Gentiles, every one of us in this room and the majority of people in our listening audience, we were Gentiles who were far off. And then he made us one new creation in Christ and tore down the wall of hostility it goes about being biblical in our response and asking God, fill us with the Holy Spirit to live this out. And the good news, Jesus already promised that. Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power to be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. Almost to the point that Jesus is saying, the reason why I'm giving you the Holy Spirit is in order for you to reflect me in this very moment that we're in, June 1st, 2020. Not that it's supposed to be some, some far off. And guys, let me tell you, people are, they are, we've talked about this before this event happened, but people really are desperately looking for answers. My son's head football coach and wife came down the street two nights ago because they wanted to just check in and see how I was doing. Um, his wife, Michelle, is a teacher. And she said, talking about the trauma that kids are seeing, all kids are seeing in this digital age. And she's like, I wish that we had, I need resources. Like, how do I help? How do I help my kids? And here we have this gospel, which helps with trauma, which helps with the greatest trauma that without it, people face. Without Christ, you face the ultimate trauma of eternal separation from God. There's nothing more traumatic about that because it's a trauma without end. And so in this gospel, we can go through scripture, through God's word, through example, through the filling of the Holy Spirit, through the church being the church as it is right now. And that is our gospel response. This is the church's finest hour for God to work through our imperfection and brokenness to glorify his name. I understand that George Floyd was a man of God, and I was wondering what you think if he was given the opportunity to speak to what's going on in the world right now, he would probably use it as an opportunity to do just that, talk about the gospel of Jesus. Yeah, I think he would, because for those who know George, and they called him Big Floyd. Yeah. And uh, he was... 6'6 six, six is not that big, my my yeah. opinion, personally. Yeah, no. 6'8 six, maybe, but 6'6, six, yeah. six, eh. And when you add some of those guys who are like 7, you know, <laughs> 7 feet. Um, but big, you know, his handle was Big Floyd for God. Mm-hmm. And you've been, you've been hearing more from the people who knew him that, you know, you have the man of peace. And in the city, you need a gatekeeper. And in the third ward, Floyd was a gatekeeper, that that was the person in the community. So listening to guys say, you know, we knew him and we have a church and ministries that happened precisely because he was here. And so he came to the cities to, to you know, redo his life, to take advantage of a program. But in some ways, Floyd, Floyd's not... Um, He's not much different than the experience that people have faced before. I mean, like, in the city, you you can explain to sometimes the black men, like, Jesus understands. He understands what it is to be looked at negatively, to have someone to make up stories about you, about who you are and your character, and then to be, you know, bum-rushed by a mob of people and to go through not an actual right, more of a kangaroo court, and to be crucified, and your dad's not there, and your, you know, your mom's there, and all the various things that you read through on the gospel of Christ, you can see that in the experience of African-American men. Does that mean everything that they're doing is right? No, but there, as King said, there's, there's, there's two different Americas. And so I think Floyd is doing, doing quite well because the gospel is real, that you get to be Jesus, get to see Jesus, which is all of our heartbeats. But I think he would be back and saying, I want to point you again to this Savior, and again, I want you to point to the power of the gospel. And here's the deal. Doing this right now, 
the time is of the essence for us to live this out. What we're about to do right now, it's going to be work. It's going to be hard work. And this is something I challenge our church family with. And the reality of this is that there are going to be more people who lose their life for this and for taking a prophetic Christ-centered gospel stand of discipleship on this issue. And so, like, for me to sit here and kind of give some sort of cotton candy, you know, we're disturbed about this at the moment, and we expect that people like PDM and some other people are going to say things about this, but when can we get back to normal talk? No. This is a corporate, systemic issue that will take a corporate, systemic response. And Jesus, though an individual, his death, Hebrews said, paid the penalty once for all time, corporate systemic. Romans 5 says that as one man brought Adam in the first garden, brought disobedience into the world, Jesus surrendered his will to the Father in the second garden, and through his death, he brought life into the world. And that was a corporate thing that we've been affected by that. So so that's going to be the power that, that's at play is allowing Jesus to live that out. Well, it's nice to be back in the mix. Miles Arnold Maxwell, thank you so much, David Miles, for being here. Rebecca, you're here all the time. So am I. Yeah. yeah it's, it's just okay. another day for you. <laughs> well, I'm jealous no, because Bill gets to kind of see. He's like, you're here all the time. I'm like, man, I'm jealous of that. I'm like, hyped to be able to see Rebecca. Oh, cool. thank oh, yeah. you. Well, it's great to see no, you, too. I'm it's just not the same on the phone. Very yeah. lucky. All right, we'll take a little break. Uh, we'll be right back with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.